God is good. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, you can open it up and flip to the Old Testament, and we are headed back to the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a device, you can turn it on and swipe to the book of 1 Samuel, and we will be in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 this morning. We are in week 3 now of a series that will take us through the summer as we look at the book of 1 Samuel in a series that I'm entitling, Give Us a King. Give Us a King. This title is not my idea. It is taken from a particularly tragic moment in the book of 1 Samuel. About a third of the way through in 1 Samuel 8, there is a verse that I have shared at the beginning of each of the last two sermons, and I will share it with you again to give us a sense of where this book is taking us. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it says this, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. The book of 1 Samuel is a story of God's people consciously rejecting God as their king. We want another. We want someone better. And by taking their eyes off of a truly faithful God, they became envious of a busted worldly system and thought that our culture has something better for us than our Lord has for us. What a mistake. In our own cultural moment, we live in a time, not when the world is doing this, but when the church and individual believers are picking right up where the Old Testament Israelites left off, walking away from faith in Christ, walking away from Christ's bride, the church, rejecting the authority and the inerrancy of his word, the scripture, embracing false religions and trying to sort of roll Christianity up into a new secular religion in which the chief word is tolerance and embracing then, therefore, the wickedness of our culture and pursuing, among many things, the church pursuing prosperity gospel in which we understand that Salvation is really a matter of God providing you with finances or pursuing social gospel in which we come to understand that Jesus' really only purpose in life was to solve social problems and that the reality of the biblical gospel is ignored. But the biblical gospel teaches that all humanity has sinned, fallen short of the glory of a holy God, but that God the Father sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who has paid our debt on the cross, who has come as eternal Savior and Lord and is redeeming lives, changing lives from the inside out and making all things new, says Revelation. So this morning we come to the Old Testament, yes, the Old Testament, and in chapter 5 and 6 we're going to see that God once again is the perfect king to lead us in the battles that we face. We don't need one better than him because there is no battle. There is no struggle, there is no crisis, there is no temptation, no sin, and no hurt that you can face in this life better than looking to God as your king, looking to God as your father. Let's take a moment now, let's pray and ask for God's blessing over his word, and then we will begin reading. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a glorious king, that you sent your son Jesus the prophet, the priest, and the king, and we look to you this morning from your word. Fill us with hope. Fill us with life. Draw our hearts to you afresh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So this is 1 Samuel now, chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 that open up this chapter. The scripture says this, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. What a sight. Verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. What do we make of this immediately fascinating Old Testament passage? Number one, by the way, they said it could not be done, but this is in fact a two-point sermon. (laughs) Two points. Number one, trust the Lord who is your victorious king. Trust the Lord who is your victorious king. Israel is defeated. God's people are a mess. Hopefully your recollection of the Ark of the Covenant is more than just from the 1981 film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I did ask Harrison Ford to come and speak this morning and explain to us the intricate overworkings of the Ark. He was unavailable. He gave his apologies. Um, That movie is 41 years old, y'all. You're welcome. (laughs) The biblical Ark, though, not featured in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The biblical Ark of the Covenant was essentially a chest created during the time of Moses as Israel was entering the promised land by God's grace. It was covered in gold and it contained three things. It contained the Ten Commandments given to Moses and the people of God, his law, his rule. It contained the staff of Aaron, the high priest, and this staff had miraculously budded, meaning it had grown leaves and flowers on a staff and it was inside the ark as well. And finally, the third thing was a jar of manna. You remember manna? God provided manna, literally bread from heaven, to provide for his people while they were in the desert. And they saved a jar of that manna and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting, we only know about the second and third items in the Ark because of the New Testament. The book of Hebrews tells us what was in the Old Testament Ark. We are told in many places, but in particularly in Numbers chapter 4, that the ark was not to be touched by human hands. It was not to be opened or looked inside. There were very specific rules about how the priests were to engage this, and only the priests were to engage it. And so, maybe you've seen that there were two long wooden poles that the ark was outfitted with so as to carry it so that they did not break the rules and touch this holy item. The top, however, is extremely important to note. The top of the ark was known as the mercy seat or the atonement cover, and it had two winged cherubim on it. Hear hear those words, even in the Old Testament, the mercy seat, the atonement cover. The top of this was all about God's mercy. And so the ark of the covenant showed Israel, and it shows us today both God's holiness, his justice, his power, as well as simultaneously his faithfulness, his mercy, and his personal presence. 
but now it has been stolen. And along with the stealing of the ark by the Philistines, the Bible tells us in the previous chapter that 34,000 Israelites were killed, among them Eli, the priest, who God had said that he would take his life, and Hophni and Phinehas, his wicked sons who were priests in waiting, who God also promised would die, and now they have all died. And so Israel is experiencing the consequences of rejecting God as their king. They had very little relationship with God uh, at this point in their history. And what they literally did, if we read chapter 4, we kind of get the background, that they basically tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. Divorce from relationship with the Lord. When you separate, hear me, when you separate the activity of being a Christian from an actual personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ, you will find yourself in a similar place of disillusionment and destruction. When you simply identify following Christ as the outward actions and you miss the actual personal relationship and presence of a holy God, do not confuse cultural Christianity with Christ-centered Christianity. Showing up in a building, being a part of a Christian home, going once a year, Expressing that you know something about God is not the same as knowing God and making him king of your life. I do not say that to judge you. I say that to tell you that you are missing out if you don't know Christ in that way. Here in this moment, what it appears is that the enemy God, Dagon, is victorious. And many of us will do the same thing today. We will see God is not victorious in my life or in my world, and I'm frustrated by the things that I see. The Israelites had reasons to be frustrated. And I hope that you can see here specifically what the Philistines, the enemies of God, what they have done is they have placed the Ark of the Covenant in an orientation so that God is bowing before Dagon, their God. Dagon is up above, and they have placed the Ark of the Covenant in a place of humiliation and in a place of defeat because they want to clearly communicate that God has been defeated. Friedrich Nietzsche hmm, said these very famous words, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. He said that in 1882. You have no idea how those words and that philosophy define the world that you live in today. R.C. Sproul says of Friedrich Nietzsche's words and ideas, Nietzsche took the philosophy of secularism, that is the God of this age, to its logical conclusion, nihilism or nothingism. He understood that if this time is the only time and this world is the only world, then there is no God. If there is no God, then life is meaningless. If all of human existence is shut up in the here and now, then all human values are arbitrary. If there is no exit to the eternal, then values and truth and ethics are a matter of pure decision. Right and wrong are simply what we have the courage to decide what they are for ourselves. Hello, 2021, America. The gods of secularism, of relativism, of pluralism, in which all religions and all ideas are welcome except the Jesus of the Bible. But Jesus, Jesus makes an astounding couple of claims, doesn't he? Jesus claims that he has the power to rise from the dead. 
Jesus makes a shocking and offensive statement of exclusivity when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then he makes an astounding promise when he says that salvation, eternal life, abundant life, is available through me. Well, how did the people of his day respond? You remember what happened in Matthew chapter 27? They whipped him. They beat him. And they put a king's robe on him to mock him. They put a crown of thorns on his head to mock his claim to be king. And they literally, the Bible says in Matthew, kneeled down before him and mocked him with this phrase, Hail, King of the Jews. I think maybe the most offensive and tragic words that they speak, though, are these. They say to Jesus, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. And after Jesus' death, the Bible records that they got together and they say this, remember how that imposter said, after three days I will rise? Well, guard the tomb so the disciples can't steal his body and claim that he has resurrected. Hmm. But the Bible says God is victorious. The Old Testament and the New says that God is victorious. First Samuel The Bible says here that before the Philistines could even make their first Starbucks run of the morning, what has happened to Dagon? Dagon has fallen down in the presence of a holy God. And now Dagon bows to the God of Israel, the one true God. And feel the tongue-in-cheek, twinkle-in-the-eye, the next sentence that is so beautifully crafted by the Jewish author here. He says, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Here's a God that you have to prop up. You have to stand him back up and rest him in the corner. He is that weak. One of my favorite pictures of all time captures just an incredible moment is Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston. Supposed to be the fight of the century. I absolutely love this picture because Sonny Liston went down. You remember this? Or maybe you're familiar with it at least. Sonny Liston went down in the first round, done. He went down in the first minute of the fight, defeated. This was supposed to be an incredible match, but he was no match for Muhammad Ali. Now, I'm not here to promote the the politics or the religion of Muhammad Ali, but I love this picture, and I've always had it in my office over the years because, to me, it symbolizes in an incredible way the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, what you have pictured here is Jesus versus sin, Satan, and death. You can figure out which one is which. What you have here in the Old Testament is God versus the false God of Dagon. You can figure out which is which. So, of course, the the, uh, Philistines do what they can only do. They stand him up again. They have to stand him back up twice. Two mornings in a row, they come in. The second morning, though, they come in, and what has happened? Now... His head has been removed. His hands have been removed. Notice it does not say that they were broken off, but that they were cut off. This is not because the wind blew really hard in their temple last night. This is because God has destroyed their God. This is the ultimate mark of humiliation and defeat in the ancient world, certainly to lose one's head, but also to cut off one's hands. You'll recall, perhaps, if you have any awareness of the Old Testament, a little 
faithful shepherd boy by the name of David who meets a really big, really incredible Philistine warrior in 1 Samuel 17. And David defeats Goliath by the power of God. And Goliath's head is also cut off. Notice here, God does not need our help. God will bring back the ark to his people all by himself because God is self-sufficient. God is supreme. God is authority because God is king whether we recognize it or not. Jesus, the son of God, was, is, and always will be king. People of God, understand this. We do not live in a time of defeat. We do not live in a moment where, as the church, we are simply hanging on by a thread and hoping that God will somehow rouse himself and maybe will make this work. And man, God just wishes he could help out and do something, but he loves you. He just can't do anything about it. That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says that Jesus has already won. He is the victorious king already. He left his what? He left his throne in heaven, to come down to earth to save us. When he did, he defeated sin, Satan, and death. What was that moment? On the third day, they mocked him. They said, put a double guard on that tomb. But Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive, and he is king, and he reigns victorious today in this world and in our lives. There is nothing that you can face that God cannot handle with you and for you. We sing the song, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Guys, Satan is on a leash. Satan is living on borrowed time in this world and even the evil that evil men can do in this life. Listen to the Bible, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and soul and body in hell. Fear the Lord. Do not fear what man may do to you. Whatever you are facing, if Jesus is your king, then you can trust him in it. Even the worst things, even the broken life that you may be walking through at this moment, because believer, if you have Jesus, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that he is using even that broken circumstance for your good and his glory. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, God has bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you can trust the Lord as your victorious King. Amen? Number two, we're going to look at a lengthy passage here. We're going to go from 5, chapter 5 and verse 6, all the way to chapter 6 and verse 12. So hang on with me. And and this is an even more astounding and and I'll say unusual passage. This is verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? It's a great question, bro. They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. 
So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, no, 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 not here. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand, was very, the hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6, verse 1. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? This is funny stuff. They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, of course. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away, and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, hmm, okay. on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, which is a part of Israel, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence." The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice (laughs) and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Huh. Number two. Trust the Lord, who is your sacrificial Savior King. How'd you get there from golden mice, bro? We'll see. Trust the Lord, who is your sacrificial Savior King. I want you to see, first of all, that we today, like the Philistines, have a guilt problem before the Lord. We all have a guilt problem before the Lord. Dagon, as you recall, has no hands anymore, but God has hands. And it says that God's hands are heavy upon those that he is bringing exact, righteous, powerful justice to. 
Verse 6, the hand of Yahweh was heavy upon the Ashdodites. The hand of God was heavy in his justice upon this people. Thus, Jonathan Edwards' famous, powerful sermon in the summer of 1741. None of us were there for it. Some of you have read it. Do you remember the title of the sermon? Are you aware? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards, 1741. Humanly speaking, God used this sermon as a spark to ignite what is now referred to as the first great awakening in which thousands of people in the American colonies came to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And what this sermon among the the preached word of God and evangelism did in that day was it communicated to people the reality that God is a God of justice, that God punishes sin. And certainly we see that clearly here. God sends tumors upon the Philistines in verse 5. And it says that rats ravaged the land also in verse 5. Leading many, we don't know, but leading many to the hypothesis that God struck them with the bubonic plague. I assume, again, most of us have not experienced it firsthand, but we do know in the modern era that bubonic plague is spread by the fleas that are on rats or mice, and that bubonic plague causes massive tumors in one's armpits, groin, and neck area. Not a great day. You can understand why the Philistines are freaking out at what is happening. We don't know for sure exactly you know, if it was bubonic plague or not, but we do know this. Because of the Philistines and the cow episode, we know that this was not an act of Mother Nature. They wanted to determine themselves, is this God? And what they learn at the end of the passage is, yes, this is God actively, specifically bringing justice for sin. That is what God does. Exodus 34, 7, God will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is bad news. This is bad news for all of us. Although there is one encouragement that I want to make crystal clear here. When you suffer in this life, when you suffer injustice, when you suffer oppression, when you suffer persecution for the name of Christ, you can rejoice knowing that God cares and that God will bring justice. It's not going to be by your hand. It's not going to be on your timing, but God is a God of justice. But also, remember this reality. All of us stand in equality, guilty, before a holy and righteous God. This is not a popular notion. It is a biblical notion. Therefore, it is a true notion. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you can think over your entire life and recognize, yes, here's one moment where I definitely sinned, then you are guilty before a holy and righteous God. And certainly I cannot stand before you and claim that I have sinned only once. It is striking to me that the Bible takes the time to tell us that it says after seven months that the Philistines decide to send the ark back to Israel. And you may hear that and go, if I was there, I would be fed X and that junk back to downtown Israel the very first day that that tumor junk showed up. What took them seven months? It's an absurdly long amount of time. And what I think is going on here is that in our lives as well, isn't that the way that sin festers in our lives? Isn't that what sin does to our hearts because our hearts are inherently sinful? And it goes something like this. I know this is wrong. God has made this clear to me through his word. I have 
godly friends, I have a pastor, I have people who are speaking into my life saying, this is a bad idea, this is wrong, you ought not to do this, it is dangerous, but I have to have this thing in my life. It doesn't surprise me that it took them seven months to let it go, because we all have a sin problem, not just the Philistines, us, and it is a sin problem that we cannot stop sinning on our own. And then we see an insufficient sacrifice enter into the picture, an insufficient sacrifice. The priests in uh, Philistia, is the name of their country, say, send it back. Send it back with a sacrifice or with a guilt offering, essentially. Be clear here. This is the religiosity of a false religion, not the Philistines coming to know Jesus. This is not a saving relationship with God. What they are doing is the same thing that they have always done. What can I do to manipulate the gods or what can I do to earn God's favor? Same deal, 2021. What can I do to impress God or earn God's favor? Their sacrifice is not enough to save them, nor is yours. Your good works, your good efforts, your desire to give back to the community, although all good things are not enough in and of themselves to solve your problem of sin before a holy God. And if we look to the Old Testament, to the Bible, to the Lord himself, to his sacrificial system that he instructed Israel to observe, their sacrifices were never designed to be sufficient. Israel was not saved because they did enough sacrificing. Israel, those Israelites who were saved, were saved because they looked forward to a coming day when a Messiah would do for them what they could never do themselves. The only difference between you In Israel, we look back to a moment when Jesus Christ came, and they looked forward to a day when he would come. Everyone is saved only through Jesus. The scripture here ends with one final shocking revelation of God's justice and our need for God's mercy. To finish out chapter 6, what happens is the ark is returned to Israel. And some of the Israelites who see the ark did not take seriously God's warning that he had made clearly in the book of Numbers to not touch it, to not look upon the ark, and they themselves also experienced God's justice because they became apathetic about God's holiness. We don't know, but perhaps they thought that their ethnicity as Jews was enough to save them, or they thought that their good works and their growing up in church, so to speak, was enough to save them and to avoid God's holy and righteous judgment, but it was not. And so 1 Samuel 6, 19 and 20 says this of God, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, again, these are Israelites, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Boy, that is an important question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Who is able to stand? As there is one. There is one who can restore the broken relationship between creator and creation that has been devastated by sin. There is one who can satisfy the justice of a holy and righteous God, one who can accept the punishment that we deserve but cannot handle. There is only one perfect sacrifice and there is only one perfect Savior King. See, we must understand that God is fully just and he must 
punish sin, but he is also fully merciful, and he loves to make a way for salvation, and he can save you. In the ark, you remember, there was a mercy seat, an atonement cover, and it prefigured the coming of the Messiah who would make a way for you to see and touch God. Jesus shows up. He's God, but you can see him, and you can touch him. You can have a relationship with him. That's why the moment that Jesus died, the curtain in the Holy of Holies in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, telling us visually the reality that the separation that we created by sin has been removed and we can have a relationship with a holy and a righteous God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is victorious in the war against sin and death that you could never win. You understand that? Jesus died and took the punishment that you could never endure. Jesus lived the perfect life to satisfy your need for a holy and effective sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of a holy God that no golden sacrifices of mice and rats could ever successfully do. Because the king left his throne, he became a man, he sacrificed himself unto death, but he reigns today, now, forever and ever. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He always has won. Jesus wins. How on earth am I supposed to pay for my sins? Is the question that we should all ask ourselves. I can't pay my own sin bill. Understand that. I can't pay a single cent of my debt. It is an infinite debt before a holy God. And even if I tried to pay it, the cost would be so much because the cost of my sin is perfect divine wrath. And so the second I try and pay it, I fail. But Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all for me. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. He drained it. It is gone. The cup of God's wrath is empty. His perfect divine justice. There's not a drop left for those who have asked Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. He will satisfy your sin debt. And all you must do is trust him with it. Put your faith and your hope in him. Call upon him today. If you've never done that, today is a wonderful opportunity to do that. And if you would say, I believe in Jesus, but in so many ways I wander away, let this be a reminder that what God invites you into in a relationship with him is so much better. If you have run, stop running. Turn back to him. He loves you. He will forgive. Let me close by reading a couple verses of Colossians. Colossians chapter one says this, in him, in Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen. Let's pray.